Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Shift podcast. This is podcast number 22, and we are talking about sports and behavioral science this month. And with us on the podcast, we have Katie Irving and our newbies on the podcast, David and Peter. Hi, everyone. Hey, Alex. Hello. Hi, I'm Katie Irving. I'm the Global Head of Behavioral Science at HOW, and it's been a while since I've been on an episode of the podcast, so it's great to be back with you, and it's great to be on with David and Peter uh, talking about sports. Yeah, so I'm David Mantrick. I'm a behavioral science analyst on the HRW Shift team. I'm a new voice for those podcast listeners of, of the Shift podcast at home, um, as this will be my first podcast. I've long been like you listeners, a, a listener myself, so I'm excited to, to join this one myself. So I'm Peter Tompkins. I'm a research exec at HRW. This will be my first Shift podcast. And just for a little bit of context, I studied sports psychology at uni, where I graduated with a master's. Um, so yeah, now I'm really looking forward to this really interesting topic. Nice. Excited to have you all on the podcast. So let's delve a bit into why we chose this topic. So uh, many of us on the shift team are, are fans of sports. So we watch sports, we, we like sports, and some of us even play. I know, David, you play basketball, and Katie and Peter, you play football. Yeah, I should clarify, as an American person, I've been <laughs> living in the UK long enough that I call it football, but it is soccer uh, for the American uh, or North American listeners among us. And for, for me, to, to, my, to my knowledge, basketball is also called basketball in the UK. But I <laughs> an experience, I, I was a basketball player in university, um, and being a Canadian, I was always a big hockey fan as well. So that's my background in sports. That's wonderful. And you put me to shame because I don't really practice any sport on a regular basis, but I try to engage in any physical activity, sport, anytime I can. So yeah, all of this, this sort of background, the sports experience has allowed us to spot similarities and applications, crossing from sports to behavioral science and the other way around. And in pairing these two topics, we felt that we can provide a unique angle to both behavioral science and sports. And from this to generate an expanding understanding of each topic and to figure out how sport can help us explain certain biases and how we can apply that to healthcare market research. So why should we look at behavioral science in sports? Um, obviously, all of us uh, coming from our sports background, we all sort of have that perspective where we can, you know, see the behaviors that we all uh, used to do, we used to partake in, we used to observe in sports. And, you know, it makes it a lot easier for us to spot them when we, when we see them in a real life context and in a work context, a market research context, and, you know, in our case, in a, in a healthcare context as well. And I think the thing that that sport really underlines is that it provides a microcosm of, of real life situations. So something that I refer to it as is it's a theater without a script. And when I say that, I mean that sport exemplifies and it condenses real life phenomena into a digestible and a simplified format. For and so it really showcases biases um, for people to easily observe and to relate to because people relate to sports very well. So much like a theater, the way that that brings a lot of things to life for people um, in the way that, you know, scenarios are acted out, sports does the same sort of thing. Um, however, it's even more of a real life context because, you know, the behaviors are naturally arising in the, in the context of competition, unlike a theater. So it's even more uh, real life even than what a theater would be. So it's, you know, without a script. And, you know, there are all sorts of behavioral science biases that naturally arise in the sport context, given its richness with decision-making, contrasting context, and just necessitation of behavioral context that, that happens within a, a sports environment. You see a lot of variants of this just within different sports, in addition to individual sports themselves. So, you know, whether it's an individual or a team sport, you'll, you'll see different behavioral biases start to, to arise whether it's a sport that's you know, rich in, in strategy and uh, necessitates a lot of thinking, or if it's one like the 100-meter dash, which just relies on pure 
physical ability, you'll see behavioral biases start to, to, to come about in many different ways, which I think is a really valuable thing when you're trying to analyze where do behavioral science biases come about in real life. And I love that concept about like a theater without a script. I think the other thing that's fun about the athletic environment is just that under all of the kind of pressure and this, um, the adrenaline that's going on, it, it creates that kind of attentional narrowing where we see biases become more present because, you know, there's only so much brain energy that people have. And when you're in those kind of high pressure adrenaline environments, people are going to be more subject to biases and heuristics that they need to make decisions. So it's a really great kind of, like you say, microcosm. I I think you hit the nail on the head there where, you know, it's not only an exaggerated version of of a lot of the behavioral science biases in terms of their portrayal, but also in terms of the actual action of the bias because of that context, because of that exaggerated level of adrenaline, it might be, or, you know, all these other sorts of things that just really exaggerate the bias and makes it much more digestible and much more easy for us to spot and then be able to apply to another circumstance afterwards. Nice. Can't wait to see some of those examples and talk about them later. What are your thoughts, Peter, about the application of behavioral science in sports? Yeah, no, I completely agree with, with David and Kate. It's, um, it's actually about the sports psychologists qualified sports psychologists will be employed into places like the workplace and surgeries and general healthcare just to just kind of deal with those those biases that can pop up things like performance under pressure like general anxieties um team cohesion leadership like situations like that can really be quite exposing for some people and can really create some situations of of bias so yeah employing someone like that to help cope with that even in your day-to-day life is, is extremely relevant so yeah, let's look at some of those biases. So the first one we could have a look at is the narrative bias. And what this tells us is that our brains cannot fathom the nature of randomness. We don't deal well with that. So then we need to build up a cause and effect story to make the world seem predictable, to make it more cohesive and to make sense of it. So then when we have an unpredicted event that occurs, we then immediately grasp for explanatory stories and we build up those causal relationships because that makes them simple, makes them coherent, and it gives us some solid ground to walk on. So from sports, from the sports you watch or you play, what are some of uh, some examples that can uh, illustrate that narrative? narrative bias at play yeah well i mean i think for me uh, as a canadian hockey is just absolutely rife with examples of superstition which falls into narrative bias you know it's in hindsight looking back you know oftentimes in hindsight sometimes with foresight um, looking back and trying to build that cause and effect relationship between why did something happen um, especially why did something good happen for me um, and it must come down to you know these reasons that may in in statistical reality have nothing to do with it at all <laughs> and in in hockey there's all sorts of traditions as there are with with many other sports that just really fall directly into this category if you ever happen to find yourself in an nhl playoff game one of the things you might notice is that all of the players seem to have beards that are at least about four inches long and you might ask why well this falls into that sort of superstition that a lot of them have where, you know, once the playoff starts, if you cut your beard, it's seen as unlucky. And so any success, a lot of people will look back and attribute it to as a team in a nature with, you know, a degree of camaraderie, we all did this together and that must have built something that built to our success. As a Canadian, I also just have to bring up the lucky loony example at the 2002 Olympics, which I was very encouraged to hear that Katie as an American uh, knew a lot about since at those Olympics, we did beat the U.S just saying um, what happened essentially is a loony is a is a one dollar coin in canada and so the zamboni driver which is the ice rink cleaner during the olympic games decided to go to center ice and he put down a lucky loony at the, at the center of the ice so once the ice froze it was under the rink that they were all playing on 
Um, and Canada hadn't won a gold medal in 50 years, as bizarre as that may seem. But as it happened, the men's and the women's team both won the gold that year. And as the tournament went on and they were having increased success, the lucky loony rumor started to come out. And as both of the teams started to have an increasing degree of success, this lucky loony theory started to be more and more popular where, you know, people were attaching that cause to the effect, which ended up being their wins and their success. So, you know, these are the sorts of stories, of course, you see all the time in sport that fall into that narrative bias and really give an easy example of something that we tend to see in our everyday lives as well. I love the... um the playoff spirit example as well, because I think there's a lovely element of ritual and collective ritual of that between the members of the team. And so there's a degree of that kind of social reinforcement that really ups the ante for the way that that's um, connected to their perceived uh, rate of success. I was very superstitious as a player when I was growing up as a soccer player uh, growing up. And so I had like lucky socks and a lucky like goalkeeper jersey and my brother actually had a lucky goalkeeper jersey that he refused to let my mom wash so he had a really filthy shirt um, that he perceived as his kind of good luck charm sports people are often so keen for anything that can give them perceived self-efficacy over the outcomes of the of the sport and improve their performance even a little bit that it is a really ripe environment for starting to believe in the value of that kind of narrative and, and becoming very superstitious about stuff and really carrying that forward in a yeah in a really superstitious way yeah and i i think i think it all relates back to obviously as as part of the definition of, of narrative bias that lack of a, of a wanting to believe in any sort of randomness when you're in a competitive environment you want to attribute your success to something ideally that happened and ideally even more something that you did when it's a competitive environment you really want to attribute it to that and i think that that relates as well to to confirmation bias where that result that you end up seeing you're going to look for it being the thing that you you had hoped that that would have caused it. You know, you're going you're going to try to confirm to yourself that it was a certain reason that was underlying the reason for that success. So I think the narrative bias and, and confirmation bias as well are kind of interlinked when it comes to sport and when it comes to other examples as well. Funny anecdote: I uh, sometimes go running, and one time I went running without my ring that I wear every day, <laughs> and I don't know what happened, but. I felt like it was bound to be my best time yet. And the day, the day was beautiful. They changed the route, my favorite route. It, it was great. And then halfway through the run, I was like, oh, damn, I don't have my lucky ring. It's gone. Oh, it's, it's not going to be my personal best, is it? And then just a few minutes after that, <laughs> finally, I twisted my ankle a little bit or it just became very painful. So I had to stop. And I was like, ah, this is all because of that ring. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> so then uh, after that, I, I was trying to dismantle this superstition and I sometimes leave my lucky ring now at home. But I do feel a bit uh, uneasy running without it. I think that's a really good example as well, Alex, of the way in which the narrative bias can become dangerous in hyperbolic situations like high-pressure sports performance performance environments where people can really get in their own head and become destabilized based on their perception of whether or not the conditions are right for their success. And that can happen, I think, in a lot of different situations. In fact, so thinking about that kind of pressure can be really relevant when we think about how this applies to things like, for example, the way we see it come through in the type of work that we do. We've worked on a lot of products where there's been a safety signal or a, a reputational 
issue with the product where there's, you know, some kind of rumor or, or again, a legitimate kind of safety signal that makes physicians wary of perhaps prescribing the product or patients wary of using the product. And often part of the challenge is that there's not a clear narrative for why that problem exists or what caused it. And that lack of origin story or lack of rationale, lack of a narrative can flood the area with uncertainty and can make it feel even more uncertain. So the need to kind of have a backstory for why that happened can really undermine the physicians um, and patients kind of comfort with the product. So it's a similar situation in that not having a really clear reason why they should be successful can really undermine athletes in terms of their perception of their performance expectation and, and ultimately perhaps undermine their ability to perform well. Yeah. And for me as well, I think it applies in so many different ways to just a, a health and well-being standpoint as well, which is obviously something that we cover a lot of here at HRW, even if it's not directly related to a product, just about well-being in general. I mean, imagine making any sort of lifestyle change. Say it was just a, a minor one that was to help your, your day-to-day life. You say you're trying a diet, something like that, and looking to see that specific health change. It could be that you do actually improve in health and you really had nothing to do with whatever that lifestyle change actually was, where really it might be that you have needed a different treatment for it the whole time, but because you've sought out that narrative, you've looked for that cause and effect. Now you have a depiction of what's really going on that might not be accurate, which may not serve you well down the line. So it's this seeking of ideas, the seeking of cause and effect that may undermine our ability to seek optimal information at times. That's a really good point, David. We do see that a lot, don't we? That the reason for initiating that kind of lifestyle change makes people really wedded to those changes and they can sometimes stand in the way of appropriate treatment initiation or escalation because people are so bought into the changes that they've made because of the way they started and the narrative behind them. I guess it kind of applies as well when like a new product would hit the market and or, and the more traditionalist HCP might be very stuck in their ways and refuse to move on and try those new novel therapies despite the backup of data or the backup of colleague experiences when someone can be really set in their ways and understand that cause and effect profile it almost becomes like a safety blanket and you can be really scared to move on despite the fact that a newer more novel product might be more efficacious it's that like you say it's that seek for cause and effect and that understanding that comfort blanket that really does reinforce and drive behavior a very well-known application of behavioral science within sport is definitely the hot hand fallacy um, i think it's a very intuitive application for a lot of people which has really made it stick in sort of the mainstream behavioral science domain, you could say. So essentially the hot hand fallacy is the misinformed belief that you enter so-called hot or cold states based on your most recent performance or your recent performance in general. When in reality, your past performance may actually have no impact on your future or present outcomes. So that is to say, when the statistical probability of a future success in a, in a task is actually decoupled from the recent performance, any perceived hot or cold state is simply a, a fallacy. It's a psychological state, in fact. It's not actually predictive of that hotter or colder outcome to come. So as I said, for many people, the intuitive application is basketball because we intuitively see this when we watch basketball and when we play basketball, where shooters are often seen as either getting hot or cold, meaning that you know if you're hot, you would expect that player to make the next shot that they take. And if they're cold, you'd expect them to miss. So for anyone who's ever watched a basketball game, which I'm hoping is many people on this podcast, just imagine, think of a time where a player on one team has hit, say, three consecutive three-pointers in a row. So that's made them. 
he would be in a, in a hot state now. The next time that that player has the ball, you may hear the buzz of the crowd. It's kind of this indescribable buzz, this noise that happens. And it's the noise of anticipation because they believe their next shot is now likely to go in, that the player is in a group. You may see that the player's teammates are actually going out of the way to pass in the ball. And you may see that player as well go out of his normal route, his normal patterns to try to get another shot because he believes and his teammates both believe that he's in a hot state. He's more likely to make the next shot. And the same is actually true in reverse. If a player has just missed three three three-pointers, you may hear a different sort of noise in the crowd, in the atmosphere. It's more of a groan. It's It's again, it's hard to put a finger on exactly what that noise but you can sense the dread in a crowd if someone has just missed multiple shots and they're anticipating that that player is going to shoot again because they imagine that he's going to miss. So this is being in a rut. This is being in a cold streak. Their teammates may not pass in the ball. They may be a little bit more hesitant to shoot the next time. So for this reason, basketball really provides a prominent example of the hot hand fallacy. And it actually comes from a 1985 study by Amos Tversky, who's one of the pillar researchers in behavioral economics. And he actually found that despite what everyone thinks about this hot hand fallacy, where when you see it and you observe it and you're a part of it, you think it must exist. He looked at data from the Philadelphia 76ers and the Cornell basketball team. And when he looked through the statistics, he found that there was actually no evidence for a positive correlation between the outcomes of consecutive shot, meaning that it's a fallacy. The hot and the cold states are actually a total fallacy, despite what is common convention. Your likelihood of making your next shot has nothing to do with the shot that came before it. So you can imagine how this is divisive among the basketball community, because, you know, as we said in the, in the narrative bias, we have this issue in our brains with randomness. We're unable to accept an aspect of that. It's sort of taken as an affront to what basketball players all see and perceive. And it's this, I guess you could say this dominance of what is perceived versus what is the statistical reality. And people seem to have a preference for, for what is perceived. I love that example of the um, study from Amos Tversky, David, because often we talk about the hot hand value in the context of, you know, throwing a dice. And in that context, obviously past dice throws or flipping a coin, the past throws have no impact on the odds in a future throw. But again, this is where you say sports are a really nice microcosm because you you think that someone's confidence would have an impact on their performance and past successful performance would seem to lead to confidence that would increase their likelihood of having a really good performance. And that just that psychology of really feeling feeling on and feeling like you're in the moment seems, you know, to the intuitive brain to make sense. But it's really fascinating to know just how fallacious that kind of thinking is, even in those situations. Yeah. And I think that sort of underpins a point as well, where it's good to look at some of these biases, not only through the lens of seeing the bias for what it is in a more condensed, digestible manner, but also seeing some of the explanations for the behavior that underpin that. So when you think about the hot hand fallacy in basketball, you understand immediately, just intuitively, how that relates to overconfidence, which then leads to to further actions. If you believe that you have the hot hand or the cold hand in some context, and you've ever seen a basketball game before, you can understand how that would cause certain behaviors down the line for certain players if they have that belief about themselves. There's certain players, there's there's one in particular that comes to mind, Ray Allen, who used to be the all-time three-point leader in the NBA, but was recently passed by Steph Curry. And he would always speak about that, where he's never thinking about the last shot because he never believed in the hot and cold fallacies. He, He never believed in hot and cold streaks. It wasn't for him. And so knew that his last uh, shot had nothing to do with the next one and that his preparation was going to be the ultimate indicator of whether he would make that next shot rather than the success he had on the last attempt. That's a nice way of thinking about it as well as almost the antidote to the narrative bias that actually your preparation has gotten you to this place. 
and that you're not hot or cold. And so you miss a shot. That's fine. It doesn't mean that your next shot is not going to go in. It just means that you missed a shot. If you make a shot, great, but it doesn't mean your next shot is going to go in. You still have to, you know, put the effort in. So that's quite a nice way of thinking about it. This is so applicable from like a sports psychologist training point of view, and especially in like closed, I've called closed skilled actions. So like a free throw, when someone's bowling, a, a tennis serve, a penalty kick, creating that completely repetitive action to the point that it is automated and it is just so almost like tuned in to the point that hot or cold doesn't really matter and going into each and every shot as like you say David a new shot and a new action that the previous actions have no consequence or influence on how you perform and I know from like a sports psychologist point of view they will try to train people to have that self-efficacy and self-confidence that they will no matter what they do going into this new action it is still a new action there is no influence from their previous sport or their previous performance yeah it's, it's just so common especially and even in other workplace if you have a bad performance in your previous report or your your previous presentation you will go into your next one with that and it's it's so hard to get rid of day to day and it affects us all I think. Another bias that we were talking about one of our meetings as applicable to sports is the action bias this is where people prefer to do something over not doing anything because they believe that doing anything is better than doing nothing we see this in sport maybe you guys can talk a bit more about this as it's it's football it's your uh, your slice of cake. Just to explain to any soccer football novices out there a penalty kick basically it's if if someone is um fouled within the penalty box which is the large box in front of the goal then that means that that individual has an opportunity to take a shot from very close distance with just the goalkeeper in the way it's also the way that they do tie breaks in international football or are at the end of tournaments where they need to find a winner after a couple of periods of additional time they'll just actually do alternating penalty kicks where each member of each team will take a penalty kick and then a member of the other team will take a penalty kick until one of the teams has an advantage and then they're named the winners of the game. And I think it's 11 meters, right? So it's quite quite close. So it's a good chance of... It's, a ve- it's very <laughs> close. In fact, so I used to be a goalkeeper and in goalkeeping, you always kind of liked penalty kicks because basically they should always score. They're so close. You have almost no chance of actually saving the ball. And if you do save the ball, you're a huge hero because the odds are really stacked against you. But what's interesting about the way that penalty kicks are taken from a behavioral science perspective where this action bias comes into effect is that actually the main objective for the shooter is to just make sure that the ball goes on target and so actually they're usually trying to make sure that they don't miss the goal and they usually end up kind of aiming towards either the center of the goal or slightly within the goal posts on either side they usually aim for the bottom corners as the typical penalty kick strategy and what goalkeepers tend to do is just pick a side and dive to the side now they used to like to think that we kind of try and guess which side the way they set up that which side they're going to go to or try and react, but you don't really have enough time to actually react to it. So goalkeepers tend to basically just dive to one side. But what's interesting is that they've looked at some statistics about this and they said a penalty kick towards the center is about seven percentage points more likely to succeed than a kick to the corner. But a lot of the penalty kick takers don't necessarily aim towards the center. And part of the challenge is that the people who are taking the kick, because again, the goalkeepers are kind of diving to the side, kickers fear the shame of kind of just kicking it down the middle when the kind of standard practice is to kick to one corner. Yeah, it forces you to make a decision when a decision doesn't necessarily need to be made. So it's almost more of a social construct, which it just really shouldn't be. (laughs) I think of action bias as being linked to this fear of hindsight and this fear of looking back thinking, I didn't do my job. And you can see how that would be very much heightened in a a 
context like penalty kicks where you're in a team environment and you're the one person who has the role. And so, you know, if you just stand in the middle of the goal, like what statistically might be optimal, you might have chosen the statistical optimal choice, but then if it's wrong and it looks like you didn't do anything, then it, it doesn't make you feel good. It doesn't make you feel good and it might also make you look bad, which is obviously something that's linked. So I think it, this aversiveness to looking back, thinking, you know, you want to be able to look back and say, I did all I can and it's not my fault, even if it didn't go my way. I have a, an example of this that actually is a little bit rogue, but it <laughs> it pertains to my recent avocado plant that I bought. And basically, you know, in my own life, for, for those listeners who don't know, I have this notorious avocado plant that I've just uh, received from someone. And I have this inclination to want to care for it and water it as much as possible and water it every hour, give it all the nutrients possible in order for it to build a sprout. But in reality, the best thing that you can do for an avocado plant is just to leave it in the water and let it grow and sort of just let it be. But it's this fear of hindsight where if it doesn't grow, I want to look back and say, oh, I did all that I could. And I sort of relate that to the penalty kick thing where you know, you don't want to just stand in the middle and get scored on. You want to have made the action when you look back. You want to look back and, and say that I did all that I could. Yeah. And David's infamous avocado plant. But also this was kind of part of the genesis for this podcast. And part of the reason why I'm on the podcast is that uh, David and I were chatting about penalty kick taking. And exactly like he said, you know, the goalkeeper wants to show that they're doing the best that they can. They want to dive, even if statistically that's not the best decision. And again, you've got, like you said, David, the additional pressure of your whole team is watching you. You don't want to just be like, statistically, I was correct to just stand in the center of the goal and hope that the opposing player kicked it at me when actually they kicked it in the corner. So it, it, it's that kind of showmanship of you've got to make a big effort and you've got to really fling yourself off in the corner and try and do your best to save it, even if it just ends up going straight down the middle and into the goal. Yeah, and we see this personified in research. We see that sometimes doctors take the choice to prescribe a treatment, even though they know that it might not work or it's likely not to work, just because they think they should be doing something. They should be offering a treatment to a patient. Yeah, we see this in a lot of areas where there isn't necessarily a licensed therapy. They sometimes prescribe completely useless therapies. You know, for example, we've seen uh, doctors prescribe antidepressants to patients with severe cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease. That doesn't necessarily help, but it feels like they're doing something. And I think there's a similar thing in that it also is not only for them having a bit of an action bias, but it's also for the audience. It's for the patient that they don't want to just have a patient in front of them and they're like, sorry, there's literally nothing I can do for you. It's like, here's a thing, even if it is essentially in that instance a placebo, it's something that they can do. It's something that they can take. It's something that they can take away. Yeah. And we do go to doctors with the idea in mind that they can cure us. They can give us something to make our life a bit better. Right. So we've talked about all of these biases that apply in sports and we see how they can apply to our daily situations like owning an avocado plant or running without a lucky ring or how they apply to healthcare when ACPs can be prescribing treatment that's useless just to do something and to make it look like they're doing something to help their patient. And this is very interesting to see that sometimes we are aware of these biases and we are aware that our actions might not really have a benefit. So why would we keep doing them? So why would, for example, looking at the narrative bias or the hot hand fallacy or the action bias why would we not adjust our plans in accordance with the data, with the statistical evidence that would allow us to behave optimally and to choose optimally and rationally? 
I think part of the challenge for why we don't necessarily behave optimally, even when we have evidence that that's the right approach, is exactly what we were talking about in relation to some of these biases and the way we see them manifest in sports, and that it makes a lot of sense to assume, for example, that when someone is hot, that they are going to stay hot, that they're going to have additional confidence and perform better. It feels intuitive to believe the way that we've always believed. And unless you know about these behavioral biases and the evidence basis behind them, it becomes really difficult to counter current wisdom and behave differently. And when we were thinking about this podcast, we also talked about the movie Moneyball, which I think is a great example where for for those of you, no spoilers, but for those of you who haven't seen the film, it's a film with Brad Pitt where it's a real life story about a manager of a baseball team who, or a new manager uh, or statistical recruiter person of a baseball team. He realizes how important statistics are in baseball and he realizes he could create basically an ideal team if he just recruits people in a particular way based on their strengths to optimize the statistics and therefore collectively the team performance. Whereas the received traditional wisdom in baseball is that scouts go out and watch individual players and decide whether that player is of the right caliber to become part of the team. Whereas this guy uses statistics to try and create a team. And it was such a novel approach that everyone thought he was a crazy person. And I think the exact same thing happens in business and the exact same thing happens in healthcare. And that unless you have the evidence basis and you believe and buy into that evidence basis about why these biases are so important and why the approach you're taking is the right approach, it's really, really difficult to counteract that kind of intuition and received wisdom about the way people are. Yeah, I think this whole discussion sort of underpins the point of, you know, just because somebody does know about the bias or just because you may educate somebody about a bias that may be occurring does not mean they'll be overcome. In fact, I think that we tend to see them quite systematically, even when they become quite common knowledge. Identification of the biases is not enough. Education, even of the people committing the biases, is not enough. That sort of underscores the point that strategies have to be constructed that uproot the cause of the bias in order to confront them. It's not enough to just tell someone that it's happening. The example that comes to mind now is you can tell someone about the action bias, but unless you actively do something about what's underpinning it, which for me, what comes to mind is the social pressure, for example, that someone might feel in that situation, you might see that same bias systematically continue. And also, I suppose it's kind of also identifying opportunities where you need to lean into the bias versus where you have an opportunity to more thoroughly deconstruct and approve the bias. It brings to light some of the solutions that we sometimes recommend in the face of these particular biases, like your example there, David, about in the action bias, it's about the social pressure. So the approach might be to do in training some experiments where you encourage the goalkeeper to go and experiment with every third penalty kick just standing in the middle and seeing what their success rates are when they do one thing versus another thing. So encouraging people to do their own subtle experiments is often a great way to help people recognize the potential for success that's counterintuitive to the way that they've always approached it. So there are some ways where you can do that, but also there might be times where you just need to lean into it. So again, think of the narrative bias and the, 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 the lucky loony example. It didn't actually matter whether the coin was under the center ice or not. The Canadian team were doing a great job anyway. It was just that narrative. So there are often times where if you can help to allow people to kind of connect the dots in a way that helps them believe in themselves and create that belief of self-efficacy. And Pete might have some comments on how that's done in sports psychology, but you know, you may want to lean into the narrative bias in those instances rather than being like, it doesn't matter about whether the loony's under the ice, you just say, 
the loonies under the ice, guys. Don't you think the loonies under the ice? Can't you see it under there and see whether they've tied their details together themselves? Yeah, I completely agree. I think when you have performer behaving in that high pressure environment, there's there's a lot of room for impulsivity and emotional thinking and emotional behaviour. But like you say, leaning into it, if it's harmless, like if someone thinks and their right shoe on before their left makes them have a better day or they think they walk down the step with their left foot rather than their right then it's going to be okay that it's harmless and it's a good thing if that makes someone feel good and makes someone feel confident then you know like you say lean into it run with it and if it works then it works it's, it's the same as like a placebo effect if it continues to work then it's still a good thing and if that works better than a you know an actual evidential efficacious treatment then or an efficacious tactic or technique, then yeah, run with it. It's, it's harmless. It's <laughs> when devising a strategy, it's important to keep in mind after identifying those biases, whether there's a need to overcome it, just bypass it, leverage it, or just leave it as it is. I was just going to say, I suppose from like a general point, when we when we implement certain techniques like the blob tree or the hot air balloon technique, you are inviting them to act impulsively and to think irrationally. And that's what we're analysing. So I suppose, yeah, leaning into someone's impulsive and irrational thinking there is, is a way that we implement we we start interviews and we build up discussion guides for interviews with these biases in mind, with the potential that we will have some biases to unearth. So yeah, we've seen how sports can be such useful application of behavioral science because it can help us understand biases better, even explain them better when we present biases to clients and when we can personify a fairly complex problem with something simpler to understand. I feel like I've learned a lot today from my own ongoing sports performance. I'm not at the level I used to be, but I still am playing recreational football soccer now i'm going to be more attentive to not falling into the hot hand or narrative biases about my own performance do you use behavioral science on your team i'm gonna i'm gonna behavioral science the heck out of them next week yeah (laughs) watch out guys if you're listening get ready (laughs) yeah i think i'll grow a beard to run a 5k cheers david Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for listening to us. Thanks, team, for joining and for such a fruitful discussion. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye from me. Go, team! Go team. <laughs> <laughs>